Welcome to the Future Built Smarter, a podcast in which IMEG engineers discuss innovative and trend-setting building and infrastructure design with architects, owners, and others in the AEC industry. I'm your host, Joe Payne, coming from the IMEG podcast studio, which is also my office, but hey, we make do. And uh, coming from his office today is my co-host, Mike Lawless uh, from St. Louis. Mike, welcome. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. We've got a really exciting uh, project to talk about today. Excited to learn more. Yeah, me too. And I noticed that uh, uh, we're looking at video of each other here uh, as we record, and I see you're in a different office this time. And does that have anything to do with the last time we were on and the uh, maintenance guy came by and was blowing the leaf blower <laughs> during the recording? This definitely has better acoustics than the, than the leaf blower guy out, being outside of our my, my office window last time. Okay. All right. All right. Anybody who listened to last episode on electric vehicles, if you noticed that sound, that's what that sound was. Today on this episode, we're, we're doing something a little different. We have uh, an opportunity to talk about one of our premier projects, and we're going to devote the whole episode to the Denver Water Operations Complex Redevelopment, obviously in Denver. And uh, this project recently won the American Council of Engineering Companies Grand Conceptor Award. Uh, Mike, you, 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 you know all about that award, right? I do. I, I've tried to win it, but been unsuccessful so far. Well, we are now successful as a firm. It's the highest achievement uh, for the engineering industry. And it's like winning, I think it's like winning the Super Bowl, I would guess. Uh, but instead of just beating one contender, we, we beat out 15 other grand award winners, all uh, fabulous projects in their own right uh, from all over the United States. Uh, so we're going to talk today about that project, but first I wanted to uh, share uh, a quote from Linda Bauer-Darr. She's the president and CEO of the ACEC, and this is what she had to say about this project. Quote, the Denver Water Operations Redevelopment Project is a breathtaking example of sustainable design that showcases how the engineering industry is constantly innovating to raise the bar on environmentally friendly design. That's a great endorsement, and uh, uh, to, to find out what it feels like to have worked on that project to, and to explain the project to us, we have our guest today, Ken Urbanik. Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Ken is a client executive uh, in one of our Denver offices and also worked as the project executive on this Denver Water Project. Ken, is it, does it feel like winning the Super Bowl? How does it feel to have won this incredible award? You know, it's a host of emotions. It was really quite surprising, of course, to win the award. And honestly, I was kind of taken aback just by my reaction to it. It really did catch me off guard. I wasn't necessarily expecting it. You know, you go into this final awards round. And of course, there's previous ones like the state level and then knowing that we were a national grand winner. But we really went into that award ceremony thinking, okay, is there a chance that we could, you know, win this? grand conceptor for the entire United States. And, uh, you know, you're, you're a little hesitant to, to think too much about it. And so they get to the end of the awards and they start to show showcase a little video. And right as it starts, you're like, okay, they're starting to plant little seeds here. This looks like it could be our project. And it turns out that it was. And it just, it was a pretty amazing feeling. 
honestly kind of took my breath away for a little while. I'm, I'm kind of glad I didn't have to get up on stage and do my remarks. I could just sit there on Zoom and kind of gather myself before speaking. It, it did feel amazing. You know, it's difficult to do to describe it in terms of the Super Bowl, you know, Super Bowl, your, your team versus another team. In this case, you know, IMIG is just one cog in the wheel that brought that project together. You know, when we were, of course, the entering firm and, and had a lot to do with the success of that project. But of course, we had many, many teammates outside IMIG, contractors, et cetera, that helped bring it to life and uh, couldn't have done it without them. So between them, the owners and everyone, it was a really, really broad team effort. We were the engineer of record on the project, right? And what services did we all provide for that? We primarily focused on mechanical, electrical, and plumbing engineering design, in addition to some sustainability consulting. Um, We were the engineer of record for a few of the buildings on the site and the overall campus master plan and campus central plant approach. Um, There were other MEP engineers doing distributed buildings. Um, it was a very, very broad group, but in general, we engineered the large administrative building, the central plant, uh, the medium voltage distribution system, some of the real core elements on the project. I'm sure some memories flooded back from the project. I mean, what are some of those fa- those things when you think about this project? What comes to mind? What's one of some of those favorite memories you have? You know, it's interesting. I, I can still recall walking a different job and having my cell phone ring, and it was the client. Um, our architectural client, Stantec, um, for the project. And, and I literally remember standing in a different building, looking out the window, having a conversation about why we were the right MVP for the team. And for some reason, it's just interesting to, to think about this phone call randomly in the middle of the day while on another job site ultimately led to what is, um, without a doubt, you know, the, the greatest project we've ever put together um, for myself, for my team, for IMAG as a whole. And so that, that is a memory that always seems to come back. And, it, you know, for all the phone calls you receive, it's pretty surprising to remember uh, that one so clearly. And that was 2015, early on. So just a quick rundown on some of the facts about this project. It was a, and correct me, Ken, if any of this is not accurate, but I've got here a $205 million redevelopment of a 100-year-old 36-acre campus for Denver Water, which is the city's water utility, uh, included the project included eight buildings, several of which were LEED certified, including the 186,000 square foot LEED Platinum, Net Zero Energy, and One Water Administration Building. Is that a good summary? That's a great summary. There was a lot going on in that campus. Um, it's a really unique project. And, and you would say anytime you're dealing with a 36-acre site anywhere near any metro area, it's, it's usually very complex. So this is a quite a large site for, for downtown Denver. And so to work through the phasing, to bring all those buildings about while they maintained existing infrastructure operations, I mean, it was a very challenging project for the entire team. And uh, that's a great summary of, of what all got built there on campus. I guess, Ken, what, when you, you know, it was this group of buildings that you worked on. And so there, you know, there's interactions and when you're working on a campus, you know, there's advantages, disadvantages to that, you know, group of buildings and how they might interact with each other. You know, how did, how did having a group of buildings be part of the project, you know, help or, or hinder, you know, as you move forward with some of these pretty ambitious goals that you have? You know, it really helped out in a, in a few different ways. And then, of course, it certainly had its challenges as well. I will say this, you know, it was not a traditional campus construction project in that we actually, by and large, 
raised all the existing buildings and, and built new from scratch. Um, and what that allowed us to do on the sustainability front is really optimize all the buildings across the campus to work really, really efficiently with our central plant design, um, which is not something you traditionally get in a campus setting, whether it's a healthcare or a higher education campus, you're usually dealing with existing building stock. Or in this case, although we did have a historic building on campus that we ultimately worked into the mix, um, by and large, the new fleet maintenance facilities, the warehouses, the wellness building, a large administration building, and the other buildings, we're able to optimize their systems, thus to optimize the entire campus. One of the really unique features with the campus is the ability to move energy around instead of generating new energy. So we can take heat from our on-site data center and push that out to the rest of the campus. You know, we can take solar load from our large administration building and push that into some of our um, fleet support facilities. So it was a really unique campus in the fact that it was by and large new um, as we worked through it in phases. You know, what were the major goals? You know, if you think about, hey, we started this project you know, here's what we really wanted to achieve at the end. What were those kind of those primary, what was, what was the mission for the project? You know, to achieve a project like this does require a client who has a clear understanding of the goals that they want to achieve. Um, this wasn't sustainability in passing. I mean, this was sustainability is a high focus driven from on high from Denver Water. And that really, from early on, allowed us to set the tone and ultimately deliver on that. Specifically, Denver Water wanted to make a showcase of water efficiency, um, which is so critical here in the arid west of the US. You know, it's something that has been what they do day in, day out. And so what they want to do is lead by example, show that water could be reduced, could be reused, could be really efficiently optimized for for a, a building, and then also kind of set that tone for the metro area. You know, an interesting statistic from Denver Water, you know, they're the population in the metro area is, you know, more than doubled, tripled, et cetera, over the decades. And yet over that same time period, through their leadership, they've kept water use about the same, which is pretty incredible to see that, you know, I think when people think of utilities, they don't often think about them trying to get people to not consume, right? That's the business they're in is selling it. Or I think Denver Water takes a much different approach and, and water in general is a, is a much more finite resource. And so them taking this leadership charge historically and then also specifically on this, this campus to say that, yeah, this can be achieved. So significantly reducing water on campus was a major, major goal. Um, Denver Water came out with this concept called One Water. And you know, from a holistic perspective, it is the idea that all the water that we have on the earth is the water that we have. It is this one water idea. And so the goal with that is to optimize efficiency, utilize the best source for that water. And what that means in their mind is, you know, potable water, clean, reliable, healthy water, that's best coming from the water utility. They have the facilities in place to maintain safety. Uh, but at the same time, that's not to say that there's not a lot of non-potable uses where we can use reuse, where we can use efficiency, you know, whether that's flushing toilets and urinals to irrigation. And so their concept is use the water for its best use. You know, taking clean potable water and watering a plant or flushing a toilet isn't the most efficient use of that. And so that's what they're trying to drive. And that's what they, we ultimately achieved in this project. So you've got the water side. And then we also had a pretty big, you know, sustainability goal from a net zero energy, net zero carbon perspective there's a really great interplay between water and energy. And I think Denver Water sees that really well. You know, generating and creating water takes energy. Um, 
generating cooling and heating often sometimes takes water. And so there's a lot of interplay between those uses. And so we really looked, stepped back, said, how can we optimize this? Uh, for example, you know, we don't have any evaporative cooling on our campus at all, which is a really common method for, for cooling such a large campus, whether it be directly in fleet maintenance facilities here in Colorado, uh, where it is very dry and we can do evaporative cooling, or indirectly through cooling towers. We don't have any of those means of cooling on our campus because we wanted to look at that energy water nexus. You know, how do we reduce water? How do we reduce energy? It was a really critical aspect. Those were the major, major goals. Yeah, so Ken, along those lines, I mean, I think one of the, you know, my understanding of the project, one of the places those things intersected was you did have access to a very large water main on this site. And I think one of the interesting aspects is how you utilize that from that from an energy perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, huge effort to optimize buildings, you know, let's not generate heating and cooling needs to begin with, but then how best do you then generate heating and cooling to address what heating and cooling you need. You know, you mentioned this water conduit uh, that we have on site. And so when we started the campus central plant design, you know, we looked at a variety of different systems, including traditional geothermal with the idea of, you know, drilling and installing vertical wells throughout the campus. Um, because of the size of the campus, because of the size of the buildings, you know, vertical geothermal wells can be quite costly, um, you know, especially when you start to add up multiples of them. And so you're sitting there looking at a seven-figure number for a pretty sizable geothermal field. You know, as engineers, it's always on us to look for opportunities as they present themselves. Working with the broader design team, um, we came to the concept that as a part of the project, we needed to relocate one of these water conduits anyways. Uh, this conduit and what water conduits are, they're the larger water mains that occur in a municipal water system. So these are the, the large water mains. Ours is, I want to say, 54 inches in diameter. So this is a distribution main that is taking water from a source like a lake to another pumping station to be distributed to end users. That needs to be relocated for our large administration building. So there's a big exercise in relocating such a large line. Realizing that, hey, there's flow in this water by and large throughout the year. You know, 54-inch water main can hold an incredible amount of water for energy and source. Um, so we said, hey, you know, let's take a look at using it as a heat source and heat rejection. And so to do that, we tied it into a water-to-water -water heat pump plant. And so the idea is in cooling mode, it's fairly straightforward. We're rejecting heat through a heat exchanger, right? We, we don't want to um, damage the viability of that potable water. So we have a double wall array of heat exchangers and so we're rejecting heat into it in the winter time we can actually pull heat out of it weirdly enough and it's maybe not that surprising because it's coming from the colorado rockies that water is actually cold enough to cool all the way through about the beginning to mid-august so from a cooling perspective we're actually finding that we're using it less from a refrigeration perspective of of a cooling source or heat rejection source, but more just as a free cooling medium. So the chillers, our heat pumps are not even running. We're just using the heat exchanger and directly cooling the, by and large throughout the year for free um, with, with some pumping energy. So yeah, that was a huge synergy. When you talk about adding two taps to a water main that you're already moving and, and the piping associated with it is, you know, maybe we're talking a $100,000 exercise versus a multi-million dollar geothermal field. It was, it was a no brainer. And does it even, I mean, with the amount of, you know, you are rejecting heat to it and pulling, you know, pulling some energy out of it in the winter, does it change the temperature of that 
that water? I mean, does it impact the system at all? Or is it it's just such a massive amount of water that's just a negligible sort of influence? I think whenever we use you know, water source geothermal, that's something we always have to consider is how are we affecting that source water from a temperature perspective? I know in other projects where we've done lakes or, or open water streams, that's really, really critical. Um, in this case, it's a closed loop system. There's not, you know, wildlife with inside it, so it's not as critical, but we're, we're barely moving it. I want to say we're pulling at maximum flow, maybe a thousand gallons a minute out of that conduit. And that conduit can support somewhere between 50 and 60,000 gallons a minute. So the, the percentage that we're influencing it, you know, we're maybe moving that thousand gallons, eight to 12 GPM, depending, or Delta T, I should say, eight to 12 um, Delta T. We're barely moving that water conduit temperature at all. But I do think it's something that we do have to, you know, as we see more and more of those type of systems come online, you know, you do have to start to look at the macro level to make sure that you're not super saturating the, the system. I mean, the other thing with water, it's, you know, it's a little bit different, but it's, it's, a, it's an energy storage medium. And I, I believe on this project, we had a pretty significant energy storage element that helped helped with the sharing of energy between buildings and, you know, smoothing some of the, the peaks and valleys you get in any system. And, you know, what are the challenges? First of all, you have to locate it, you know, and you have to tie it in, you know, how, how did that work? How'd you find a spot for it? You know, how, how'd you put that part of it together? Yeah. Thermal energy storage is, is always a challenge. As you know, Mike, in this case, they're, they're quite large. You know, we have two 35,000 gallon um, insulated storage tanks. You know, we wanted to make them atmospheric um, so they didn't have to be pressurized vessels. Um, so that means requires additional heat exchangers, additional pumping mediums to separate them out. They're also stratification tanks. So they have laminar flow induction nozzles. They're also reversible tanks. And what I mean by that is Either tank can be chilled water, either tank can be hot water. So they can both be hot water, they can both be chilled water. You can have one or the other storing different mediums. You know, locating them, we elected to put them indoors in our central plant. And so we just had to, you know, make space for them. I think the challenge and probably one of the bigger drivers for using them, and it's still a system that's continually getting optimized, is when we move away from fossil fuels in a cold environment like Colorado um, or other places in the U.S., what you'll find is, usually have an abundant amount of cooling. And we certainly have an abundant amount of cooling. We've got a water conduit that, that's, that's running very low temperatures. We have lots of chillers. But what we found the biggest challenge on this campus is actually heating without using fossil fuels, or I should say limiting, significantly limiting fossil fuels. And so by and large, we had a couple different options for heating. One of them was using the water conduit as a source of energy. But the water conduit generally remains pretty cool. You know, it's sitting there in the 40 degree temperature range, and so you can't pull out too much heat or you'll, you'll freeze it. It is a water system. There, there's obviously no glycol associated with that system because it's potable. So yeah, you will freeze it solid. The other option that we have is we had air source heat pumps that extract heat out of the air. Um, and again, those have a limiting factor for our ambient conditions of about zero degrees. So where the thermal storage really comes into play is recognizing that there are times of the day where we have excess heat that we are generating that we can put into thermal storage to then help span those peak um, of heating loads that we have in those cold winter nights or those cold winter snaps that, you know, like anywhere in, in the Rocky Mountain region, you will get those two to three days where you have some pretty cold temperatures. So we actually spent, by and large, the majority of our time focused on heating um, to get the fossil fuels limited. How much of that, you know, goes along with the climate as far as, you know, in, in your climate, you do have, you know, typically you have a lot of sunshine during the day and, and colder at night and you know, optimize because you're optimizing the system for this specific location and specific climate. 
So how do you, you know how do you decide how many days of storage that you need? You know how how does that decision you know, that decision work, and what's the backup plan? You know, it's not as sophisticated as you would think. So what we did, and the challenge is, you know, as mechanical engineers, you know, we're designing to ASHRAE design conditions. So ASHRAE sitting here saying, you know, from a percentage perspective, you should be using, you know, 0.3 degrees for winter temperature, you know, right around zero. But what we realize is, is that, especially when it comes to heating, you know, cooling wise, okay, yeah, you get a few hours a year where you go above your cooling design, space may grow in temperature a little bit, but heating is a little more critical, right? Because we've got to maintain freeze protection. We've got to make sure we don't lose our building and get too cold. And so what we actually did is a little bit more of a manual process. It's kind of shocking. We actually looked at historical bin data. So this is hour by hour temperatures that were recorded in the Denver market for decades. And so what we were looking for was looking at the worst case windows that we found. So this is looking at the extremes right into the individual hours. And so what we found is we found a, a really good historical condition of a cold snap. There's about a three day period where during that three-day period, your daytime's high or maybe four to five degrees, your nighttime's low or maybe minus 15. Um, so it's a you know, pretty extreme event. Um, you know, Denver is a little bit warmer than you know, some other places in Colorado just based on the elevation. So it's still relatively cold and, and certainly something that air source heat pumps don't necessarily like to operate in. And so what we did is we looked at that, that period of time. We looked at our air source heat pump performance, our thermal storage requirements, also, building massing is a critical issue. Um, we also looked at set point temperatures to say, okay, in an extreme event like that, what temperature do we really want to maintain so we can pull the load down? Ultimately, um, we did settle on adding one gas-fired boiler. So this is an emergency backup, you know, carbon fuel-driven gas boiler. It is, if you've been in central plants, you usually find huge boilers, and it, it is slightly humorous to go into a bit this huge central plant and you see what is by and large a relatively small boiler sitting in the corner and when you think about the the massive size of the campus but it's just enough to kind of push us to where we need to be with those cold snaps and so then a lot goes into that you know a lot goes into that calculation but but it did all start with a by and large a manual review in excel looking for peaks and valleys of worst case bin data beyond you know beyond taking taking out the, the you know some of these really cold temperatures I, I, I'm assuming you can also use this energy storage to optimize your energy use in the in the building, too. And even yeah. even during milder temperatures, you know, make your you know heat heat your storage tanks when it's more efficient to heat them, and then discharge them when it's it's less efficient. And there's an optimization around that. But that storage just really gives you a lot more options and opportunities to how you you optimize your system. Absolutely. And, you know, traditionally, you know, whether it's water storage or ice storage, you know, that's historically where it came from, right? It was about moving to the optimum cost condition in your 24-hour energy cycle or optimum efficiency condition. And so, you know, you would see thermal and ice storage for, for decades um, ago before, you know, super, super levels of net zero energy and, and lead focus really came about. And so now I think there is a benefit to using that thermal storage through maybe a different lens, not just from a cost shifting perspective, but from an energy optimization perspective, um, especially when it comes to heat pumps, which are really good about taking excess energy and moving it around the campus. What the thermal energy is doing is just helping you to store it even more. So, you know, I, do, I have too much heat right now, but we know that tonight we're gonna need that heat. Let's go ahead and just store it because we have it. Um, and that, that, that goes a long ways because, you know, traditional 
boiler chiller systems are rejecting heat or or pulling from the outside sources, pulling from fossil fuels. And in our case, we're trying to just maintain it on our campus. Yeah, it's it's kind of like let's be smarter about moving the energy around instead of making it, you know, or, or kicking it outside where it's just you know going into the atmosphere. I think the same, you know, to, to pivot a little bit and talk about you know the water con- conservation side. I think, you know, I, I think we do want to hear a little bit more about this system, this wastewater treatment system that's in a lobby of a building, and and really is recycling a lot of that water. And I'm you know, just interested in how how that came about, how that was developed. You know. I think it's a one-of-a-kind system that, that's there. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you bringing that back up. You know, as I said earlier, Denver Water and this one water concept was a really big driver of theirs. They wanted to, and it's very similar to energy, what we were just talking about with this, we've got this one water. Think of it as like a unit of water. How can we best utilize this unit of water? And so the idea of using it multiple times on a campus before it goes downstream, you know, it doesn't make sense to take potable water and flush it down a drain from a sink and then take potable water and flush it down a toilet, right? We can capture the water from a gray source and reuse it. We're taking it a little bit further on this job where we're using both gray and black water. Um, I will say this, you know, a special shout out to our the, the subconsultant who specifically worked on the black water system, you know, who selected the plans, who selected how the system would be maintained and monitored is a very, very, that is a very, very niche design, um, an onsite wastewater treatment system. Um, Our goal, we worked very, very closely with them to get them the water, to then take the water that comes out of that, to reuse it, to push it into the system. But uh, I'd be remiss in saying that, you know, that is a very, very specialty niche of work, um, sizing that that onsite system. But we obviously worked very, very closely with them to to think about the total use of water and, and where it's ultimately coming from. And so, a big part of what we did is we looked at the annual use of water, uh, which from a building perspective, internal, it's fairly consistent for an office building. You know, you've got your quote unquote nine to five, you've got flushing of toilets, you've got a cafe, you've got this use. But the big part of that annual analysis was we looked at rainfall rates and then we also looked at irrigation use. And so then we plotted out a number of scenarios um, to determine how best we could cover that water use, right? So this time of year, we're using lots of irrigation potentially, depending on the system, uh, plants, I should say. Um, but we're also maybe getting some water from thunderstorms or, or in the wintertime, we're capturing water from snowstorms. And so what we did is we actually modeled that out. And we looked at a number of scenarios. We looked at scenarios where we changed the availability of water, um, looking at climate change scenarios. What would happen if we got less water? What if we were in a drought? We also looked at in simple terms, a good, better, best approach to landscaping, as in the best being like, it's very well watered, it's very green, where maybe the good is it's getting enough water that it's not going to damage the plant over the long haul. And ultimately, you get out of that different scenarios where maybe we need 200,000 gallons of on-site storage, or maybe we need 100,000 gallons of on-site water storage. And so that was a really big team effort to optimize the amount of storage that we wanted. Because again, we're collecting rainwater off our parking garage roof and off of our administrative building roof. So on the parking garage, we're actually collecting it not off the parking deck, but off of the the solar array that's above the roof deck. So we're getting clean rainwater off the PV system. And on the administrative building, it is also covered with PV, but we're getting it off the roof. So that's our rainwater side. Our black water side is taking all of the flushing fixtures, all of the sinks, every water use in the building. It's collecting it, goes through a septic system, goes through tanks 
to biologically treat it. Ultimately, it goes through that the final polishing, what we call a polishing wetlands. And so that is the plants that are in the lobby. And then that clean water comes out. Um, it's theoretically potable, but we're generally not using it for potable source. We're, we're using it for flushing of urinals and toilets. Um, we're also using it for irrigation. And so we have these large, large outside cisterns you know, as we get towards September, they're going to be pretty empty. And then throughout the winter, we start to build them up, build them up, build them up. And then we start to draw off them. So that really moves heavily with irrigation. Of course, there's an optimized irrigation system as well, optimized plant selections that are Colorado native, drought tolerant, et cetera. But it was still a pretty surprising calculation for a plumbing engineer to get involved in <laughs> working closely on irrigation use. I mean, I think the goal, we need to remember the goal of as engineers, we also impact the you know occupants of the buildings, the community around it. And I just think, you know, this is just a great example of, of how buildings can do that. So I don't know if maybe you've got a few thoughts on that as we get 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 towards wrapping things up. I do. I do have some thoughts on that. You know, and I'm glad you brought it up. And if something I actually spoke of, you know, as part of my remarks for when we won the Grand Conceptor, um, and that is, it's a testament to what we as the broader industry can do. Um, obviously, engineers are a big part of that. It really says that given the right drive, we can achieve you know, carbon-free, net-zero energy, even significant reductions in water use. And so when we look down the road that we've been walking down for, for decades, and, and since I've been in the industry, you know, the, there was the concept of like the 2030 challenge, right? This idea that, you know, and this came out in the 2000 era where we're saying by 2030, we want everything to be net zero. And of course, it's really right around the corner at this point. It is achievable, you know, with the right drive. Engineers, contractors, architects, we can deliver on this. I think the key, so this job really demonstrates that. It says that, you know, with the right drive from the ownership, it can be achieved. And so I, I, I think it's a testament that it can be done. We should be doing it. Let's put the right drive into all of the, the projects that are out there because I think it can happen. It can occur. Um, it was built viably. It was built under, you know, under budget, you know, under schedule. I mean, we were, you know, so it, it's, it is a doable option. I mean, I guess I'd like to see that drive for more in the industry because us as engineers, we can do it. Um, give us the opportunity to be successful with battling climate change. Um, you know, take the reins off. Let, let's go achieve it. it. You know, and I think that's that idea that, that uh, you know, as engineers, we can be the ones who help deliver on those necessary um, climate change ideas. Because ultimately, we want to be good stewards. We want to be good stewards for the earth. And I think that's a great approach. Well, I think, you know, hopefully with this recognition and part of the goal of these programs is to recognize great projects like this so they can serve as inspiration, you know, for others that of what is possible, even though it's maybe not typical. And hopefully that moves, as you said, the industry forward and just gives us an opportunity to continue to improve in, in our building designs and improve on how we impact the environment and our communities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, you know, and, and I, th- I would say the Colorado community is, is very much about pushing things forward. And so it was great to see them embrace it. You know, it's great to see water utilities step out there and say, let's reduce water. We need to reduce water consumption. You know, there's challenges ahead. You know, I, it is surprising to me. And, and, you know, Colorado is one of those states that has very, very restrictive uh, water use regulations. We cannot right now go and put this system on other projects because of that without some serious um, exercise from ownership. And of course, you know, having Denver Water be the owner, um, we were able to achieve that um, through water rights and stuff. But I would like to see, you know, changes to some of those laws that allow us to have water reuse on our projects. 
Um, you know, they have those in other parts of the U.S. where they get lots of water. So it's, it's surprising that here in an arid place that we can't have reuse um, on a day-to-day -day in most of our projects. But by and large, there's still been significant legal hurdles to implementing that on the majority of our projects. And so I definitely think it's something that we need to see our our legislatures and stuff re-look at that. We, need, we definitely need to look at that. It's a critical issue facing, you know, states like Colorado, states like Nevada, Arizona, California, you know, and many others. Okay, Ken, it's been an honor having you here with us today. I've uh, learned a lot, and, and anyone who's who would like to learn more about uh, the Denver Water Project can certainly visit our website, imagcorp.com. And uh, you can also uh, listen to uh, this and other podcasts on our website uh, by going to our, our resources section. And uh, if you navigate to the podcast page, you can find contact information for Mike and me. And uh, if you might have any questions for Ken, we can certainly put you in touch with Ken. He's also uh, on our leadership page as well with his contact information there. So to all of our listeners, thanks for tuning in and everybody take care. <music>